Martial artists are criminals. Well, I mean, not all of them. Just the ones who got arrested and went to prison. Self-defense. Self-awareness. Self-development. This is the Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore. Hello and welcome to the Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore. The Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore is a production of philelmore.com and themartialist.net. I am your host, the aforementioned Phil Elmore. Let's see how many times I can say my name in the intro. I got to thinking about martial artists who've ended badly, or who at least have done sort of the dance with ending badly, and the first person I thought of was John Keehan, the man who put the mail-order martial arts industry on the map in the form of Count Dante and World's Deadliest Fighting Secrets. Um, and, And actually, Count Dante would become part of several legal things downstream of him after he was gone. Um, You know, Count Dante went through a period of time where he was quite insane. You can track the progress of his insanity in Black Belt magazine. When he was just John Keehan of the IKAF, I think it was, um, he was talked of well in Black Belt, and he was a, a positive role model for, for the promulgation of karate in the United States. Then he lost his mind, announced that he was Count Dante, not John Keehan, and uh, he wrote World's Deadliest Fighting Secrets, and he advertised it in the backs of comic books, and it really put him on the map. He started. He became an advocate for no-holds-barred, full-contact fighting um, because suddenly he wanted his life to be a kung fu movie, I guess. And uh, he started dojo storming, and he and a group of his guys, I guess, got into a dispute at, I want to say it was like the Black Cobra Dojo or something like that, you know, something typically 70s. And uh, there was a fight, and a guy got killed with a spear. Now, if you're in the room when another man is killed with a spear, several things have gone wrong. Several decision chains have been poorly decided. And uh, he went to trial for that because under uh, the law in that state, which I believe was Illinois because I think this was in Chicago, um, if you are like party to the death of someone else, you are essentially a murderer too. And uh, the judge in that case, mind you, someone died. The judge in that case eventually decided that everyone was insane. Anytime they put any of these people on the stand from Count Dante to uh, the Black Cobra people or whatever they were called, um, they were all just making more threats and, 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 and generally behaving like weirdos. And I think he finally was like, I can't tell who's guilty. All of you get out. So I don't think you could get away with that today where someone dies and, and the judge just like, eh, it was complicated. I told them all to go home. So so Count Dante did have sort of a brush with the law and could easily have ended his life in prison. He didn't, but he could have. And uh, later, many, many years later, one Ashita Kim, noted 1980s ninja personality, whose real first name is Radford, which uh, Ashita Kim, probably an improvement, an upgrade on Radford, Um, When Radford's father moved the family to Florida in the 1980s, um, that's when his career as an an internet ninja started. The the internet hadn't actually become a thing yet, uh, but he would eventually become an internet ninja. He was the sort of prototype for that. And uh, Radford, at some point, found a copy of World's Deadliest Fighting Secrets. 
He sort of laid claim to this as found art and started doing Black Dragon Fighting Society stuff using the logo straight out of the book, or, or I'm not sure where that logo comes from, but um, I believe it's the same one that Count Dante himself used. Well, Count Dante had contemporaries. There was a guy who knew Count Dante who was supposedly the real heir to the Count Dante legacy, at least to hear him tell it. And his son, Bill Aguiar III, sued Ashita Kim, uh, and I think this happened in Massachusetts. I'm pretty sure Aguiar's crew is located in, like, Fall River, Massachusetts. I've talked to him. He's a nice enough guy. Um, but he sued Ashita Kim for ownership of the Black Dragon Fighting Society intellectual property. Briefly, they got Ashita Kim's website taken down. I believe he had to remove all the BDFS stuff from his website in order to get the, the website put back up. And eventually when they had the trial, this was a little embarrassing for Ishida Kim because he had to admit that he basically had never had a real job and that he had no income. He was, you know, getting by basically living off his parents and I assume Social Security once he got old enough to get that. Um, he lived, I'm told, by someone who lives local to him in Florida, that he lived in an outbuilding behind his parents' house. Uh, and then when his father passed away, somewhere in there, either that or after his mother passed away, he moved into the house. Um, he was the sole caretaker for his elderly mother for quite some time, and that was the case during that trial. Um, and he, he had to make financial disclosures, I think, because he was saying he didn't have money to hire a lawyer. And then when his mother passed away, you can still reach Radford on the same landline that it was his parents. You can call that number and he'll answer. Uh, he once published a book that had a whole chapter in it devoted to what a jerk I am, and it was libelous uh, because it wasn't true. I mean, you could, you could publish a book and say Phil Elmore's a jerk. You can't publish a book that says a lot of things about me that I never did, that, that you're claiming I did. So when I called him, he answered, and I told him, hey, it's Phil Elmore, and he immediately hung up. I called him back immediately. He picked up the phone with the same cheerful response, you know, the same pleasant hello, uh, that he had, like, did you think this was going to be anyone other than me calling you back? I, I admire his optimism. We eventually spoke, and he I think he withdrew that book from, from print because I told him that that was too much and I was just going to sue. Um, and uh, so that was the end of that. But uh, now I can't say that my conversations with Radford have been particularly pleasant. He did once challenge me to fight him, and I said, yes, I, I accept your challenge. I would like to duel you with bowie knives of equal length, and I would like to be tied together at the left hand, and I wish the duel to be conducted in a darkened room. Uh, and this was a historical reference. I don't think he knew that. Um, there was a congressman named Bowie Knife Potter who was so named because in the run-up to slavery, he was challenged to a duel by a Democrat named Pryor. He issued those conditions like, yes, I'll duel you, but I want Bowie Knives of equal length. I want us to be tied together at the left hand in a dark room. And so Pryor backed out of the duel because that was a good way to die. And, and most duels actually didn't go to the death in the era of dueling. You know, it was an honor thing, and most people did not just simply want to die. Um, so Bowie Knife Potter was named Bowie Knife Potter for the rest of his life until he tripped on his pet cat and died. Somewhere in there, his fellow Republicans gave him a large wooden Bowie knife on which was inscribed, I will always keep a prior engagement, you know, spelled like the guy's name rather than the word prior. Uh, so I've always admired Bowie Knife Potter for that reason, and that was why I told Ashita Kim that, yes, I, I will fight you under these conditions. And he apparently found that a little too much and backed out, and I think that means I win by default. But anyway, 
So John Keehan, downstream of him were other legal issues. I, the court eventually decided that the Fall River Bunch had not proven that they owned the BDFS intellectual property. So Ashita Kim was free to go back to doing Black Dragon Fighting Society stuff and using that symbology and that term. But uh, I don't think that means that the Fall River crew can't because neither party has proven that they own this. They both just kind of laid claim to it and apparently there's no one left from Keehan's estate to know or care. Um, so I thought that was interesting that not only did John Keehan almost go to prison, but he was responsible for legal stuff downstream of him. Uh, moving on to other martial artists who've had brushes with the law. I mean, it's a fact that there are all these um, arrests that happen in the news of teachers who abuse their position of authority and get involved in all kinds of, you know, the, the, the uh, they're either having inappropriate relationships with their students or they're actually abusing minors, all kinds of stuff like that. That happens, uh, sadly. And it, I think that happens in any venue where a human being has a position of authority over someone else. It's very easy to abuse that position of authority. Um, there was way back in the day on the, the pit of trolling that is Bullshito, formerly McDojo, um, a website whose owner never forgave me for saying that I thought it wasn't a particularly good website. Uh, <laughs> Neil Fletcher, the owner of Bushido, has hated me for many, many, many years and will tell anyone who'll listen how much he dislikes me. Um, I, I mean, I guess I understand Neil is like four feet tall and that tends to mess with some people's minds and make them a little, little touchy. But anyway, um, the tiny man who is Neil Fletcher who has run Bushido for a lot of years now and uh, when it started, it was called McDojo. I think it was probably changed because they got a letter from a certain unspecified uh, fast food chain that said, you can't do that. I don't know that for a fact. Maybe they just preempted that. And they're like, we don't want to get such a letter, so we'll change the name. Um, but at Bushido, there was a guy. He went by the, the name Kung Fools with like two S's. And his thing was that all martial artists were depraved lunatic criminals. Um, martial artists are all criminals. That's where the title of this episode comes from. Uh, and to prove his point, he would comb the news and find news articles about uh, martial artists behaving badly and then post those articles as proof that just being a martial artist meant that you were a criminal. Now, the, the punchline is he was an advocate for Jerry Peterson's scars. Um, you know of scars even if you don't know of scars because Tim Larkin and TFT are kind of the descendants from Scars. I have no idea what's if Peterson's even alive or if he's still active, but of course Tim Larkin is wildly successful uh, for target focus training, which he, he started out as a Scars guy, if I remember correctly. Um, anyway, uh, the guy claiming that all martial artists were depraved weirdos, of course, did Scars, which in his mind was not a martial art, but of course it is, because Scars originally descended from like Kung Fu Sansu. It's derived from that. You know, any combative system is essentially a martial art. So he was too dumb to know that he was owning himself while he was posting all these articles about how martial artists are criminals. Um, but you could do the same thing. You can cherry pick. This is literally what they mean when they accuse people of cherry picking. Uh, cherry picking is a term that gets thrown a lot, a lot around a lot when people don't like the data that's being thrown at them. But if you just do a search for something and then throw those results up and say, this is proof that martial artists are criminals, what you're disregarding is control group. How many martial artists aren't criminals? Uh, it's kind of like when when you hear the statistic, well, if you own a gun, you're, you're X times more likely to be shot with your own gun. The way they arrive at that statistic is they only look at households 
where a gun was used. They don't, they, they leave out all the households where the guns exist and no, nothing bad ever happens. You know, there's, there's lots of ways to misuse statistics and sample sizes and how you do the sample. So I could look for dentists who've been arrested for sexually abusing their patients, and I could put all those articles up and say, see, dentists are all weirdos. And of course, it's not true. It's, it's logically fallacious. But, um, you know, there, there is no doubt, though, that there are a number of martial artists out there who get arrested for all kinds of horrible, petty crimes, uh, ranging from petty to not so petty. Um, Steve Garten, uh, a Sealot instructor of some renown, I believe, Kuntao and Sealot. I first became aware of Steve Garten. I mean, I've never met him. I've never consumed any of his materials, I don't think. Uh, but I first became aware of Steve Garten years and years ago when I was on Mark McYoung's mailing list. Um, side note, I'm told it's possible to win an argument with, with uh, Mark McYoung, but that's theory only because to this date no one ever has. Um, <laughs> he's quite, quite unreasonable when it comes to, to arguments. Um, I say that as someone to whom Mark has been kind of rude on occasion. Um, I don't dislike him, but I'm not a fan. Um, anyway, I was once on Mark McYoung's mailing list, and uh, I gather that Steve Garten was someone known to a lot of the people on that list. And the subject line that I remember was, The Plight of Steve Garten. So whenever I hear Steve Garten's name, I always think of The Plight of Steve Garten. Well, I don't remember the details, but I know he got arrested for something and went to prison. Um, it might have been a weapons thing, I don't recall. Um, and he's been embroiled in the legal system ever since. I went looking online before I started this podcast to see if I could figure out what it was Steve had originally been charged with. And what I found was something from June of 2022 where he was having some kind of hearing again. So Steve Garten is apparently still embroiled in the legal system. I'm like, wow, okay. So here's a guy who was a martial artist with some name recognition behind him. And uh, apparently he still got legal troubles. Uh, Ricardo Medina, or Medina, however you pronounce it. If the name is vaguely familiar to you, that's because Ricardo was formerly uh, one of the Power Rangers, not one of the really well-known Power Rangers, but he was a Power Ranger. And, and a, I gather also a martial arts guy, because it would make sense to hire actors who do martial arts for a martial arts-oriented television show. Well, Ricardo apparently got into some kind of dispute with his roommate, and... That ended with Ricardo stabbing the roommate with some sort of sword. I don't know if it was a katana or wakazashi or something like that, but some the kind of thing a martial arts guy would have in his house. Um, you know, I have 50 of them in this room alone. And, you know, so, yes, if I had a dispute with my roommate uh, and it came to deadly conflict, that you would expect something like that to happen in one direction or the other, I would assume. Um, this case was interesting because... Originally, it sounded like Ricardo did everything correctly. His original story was that he and the roommate got into a dispute. It got really ugly. He retreated to his room and locked the door. The roommate supposedly kicked the door down in an effort to get at him and attack him. And that's when Ricardo used the sword and, and dispatched him uh, in self-defense. And he was originally let go. It originally, when, when they first started reporting on this story about the Power Ranger who stabbed his roommate, it was looking like a legit case of self-defense. And then something happened. 
the police did further investigations, and I actually don't know what further details they uncovered. It's possible that the story he originally told was not accurate, or maybe he sort of whitewashed some of the details to make himself look better. I don't know. I mean, when people get into dumb fights over dumb stuff, uh, a, lot of, a lot of things can go wrong. So eventually they had enough on him that he copped to manslaughter and went to prison for it. Um, that was that was a while ago. I don't know if he's still in or what, but anyway, um, that was that was a case of a martial arts guy who ended badly. And then the single most um, YouTube relevant case of a martial arts guy getting arrested and going to prison that I can think of is clearly the case of Ron Collins. Ron Collins, who's been a fixture in the martial arts world since the late 1990s. Um, kind of stormed onto the scene in the very early 2000s, claiming all kinds of black belt ranks and all kinds of military uh, credentials and all this other stuff. And uh, his claim started to fall apart when, when not multiple people, not just one, pulled Freedom of Information Act requests for his military records. And it became clear that the things he was claiming, he was in the army, um, but a lot of the stuff he was claiming just simply was not true. Uh, based on that. And he even tried to get ahead of that. When when multiple people said they were pulling that documentation, he filmed a video saying, oh, I was joking for 10 years about being forced recon in the Marines. Uh, so fooled you. And I'm not sure what that proved, but it was probably the best that he could come up with at the time. Well, things got um, ugly quick for Ron. Um, he had a petty criminal record. He'd been convicted of contributing to the delinquency of a minor in some sort of incident where he allegedly plied a young girl with liquor um there was a he was convicted of that and of battery on a police officer um which i think involved him attacking a cop at the courthouse during one of his like before a hearing or during an arrest or something i don't i don't know the details and ron confuses the details himself because when he tells the story of what's happened to him he tends to conflate everything it all becomes part of the same vast anti-Ron conspiracy meant to stop him from being successful in life. Every level of state, federal, and local government is arrayed against him. Um, I'm part of the conspiracy. Anyone he's ever disagreed with is part of the conspiracy. Um, he was arrested for supposedly having the worst kind of pornography anyone can have on their computer. Those charges went nowhere. Those were dismissed. I'd like to believe that that means that it really was like he was living with a relative, an uncle he didn't get along with, and it was the uncle who supposedly was responsible for this allegation. Um, I think they, they they might have found this in conjunction with taking his computer because he was arrested for making terroristic threats or he was reported for making terroristic threats, but um, the the really bad pornography charges went away. Uh, they, they were not followed up by the feds. And the terroristic threats thing, that was largely because while he was looking down the barrel of going to trial for the other stuff, he became increasingly agitated and started making threats to local government officials, the prosecutor, the cops. Then he made the mistake of filming a video on YouTube where he said, hey, look at my blog at this address. And that's all the proof they needed to tie him to the written threats on the blog. So they arrested him. He eventually was found not competent to stand trial. They sent him to a mental hospital he was there for six months. He gets out of the mental hospital and they drop all the charges against him. I think the agreement was, take your meds, be a good boy, and, and everything will be fine. Because I think, I don't know this, no one knows this, but I believe he probably got out of the military based on whatever mental issues he has that he takes the medication for. 
And that's why he's been collecting disability payments from the government uh, since getting out. Um, that's my understanding of how he's made a living these years, because it certainly hasn't been through gainful employment. Um, Ron then, uh, it gets confusing because, again, there's so much lore in history where he's concerned. But he ended up confronting Don Rowley, a person with whom he's been in conflict for many, many years. I think it was around 2005 or 2006 that they first came into conflict with each other on a forum. Uh, you know, back in the days of forums, it was Budo Seek or Martial Arts Planet or Marshall something or there's so many of them. Who knows? Um, and Ron started making, you know, claims about ninjutsu and having trained in ninjutsu and, and you know, that's Don's thing. So he, he took them apart at the time and they've been, in Ron's mind, they've been mortal enemies ever since. So when Don Rowley got wind that Ron was going to be at the Black Dragon Fighting Society dinner, and that's where all these things intersect, uh, the Black Dragon Fighting Society people have these, I don't know if it's annual or every couple of years, but they have regular dinners where they get together and presumably do seminars and hand each other awards and, I don't know, trade rank power-ups uh, with each other. And uh, Don got wind that, that Ron Collins was going to be at this dinner so Don set a seminar in Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky, which was very close to where the dinner was happening, and made sure that Ron knew about it. And so, predictably, Ron Collins showed up at the seminar with a bunch of these Black Dragon Fighting Society guys in tow, and Don invited him out onto the mats to spar. Let's settle this once and for all. And this is critical. Ron's courage apparently failed him, and he didn't do it. He left and posted the video of the encounter. Somebody behind his shoulder was recording the whole thing uh, vertically. Sideways, not vertical. If you're going to please let us see more when you're recording. I know these days those rules don't apply with with platforms like TikTok and other vertical, you know, reels and Instagram and all that stuff. But at the time, your choices were film sideways or it's bad. Anyway, uh, Ron posted the video thinking I'm not sure what he was thinking, but the video did not make him look good. It made him look like he backed out of his own fight challenge. He shows up at this seminar to essentially dojo storm Roley and then won't go through with actually stepping out on the mats. So uh, Ron spent like an entire summer trying to redeem himself from what I'm sure he found to be humiliating. And I'm sure it was gnawing at him. So he tried driving down to Florida to confront a guy named Baron Shepard um, with whom he'd contended online as well. And Baron laughed him out of the laughed him out of the room. Um, you know, he didn't. He wanted no part of Baron once he realized that he was dealing with a guy who could easily have fought back. Um, then he tried driving to Colorado to menace Don Rowley's family and made many threats about burning Rowley's house and and murdering his children. Like these are a matter of record. It's not in dispute. He did make those threats. He claims that he couched them in a way that it was all theoretical, but. We, we all know what you were doing. So he doesn't quite make it to Rolly's house, thank God. His car breaks down on the way there. And uh, a bunch of people uh, in an online forum got together and bought a train ticket for him to send him back home so that he wouldn't still be in Colorado potentially creating an incident. But while he was in Colorado, he started posting on a mixed martial arts forum because he wanted to get attention for what he thought was going to be his redeeming confrontation with Rowley. You know, I'm finally going to confront him again, and this time I'm not going to back out. 
I think that was the idea. Uh, well, he never did manage to get his hands on Don Rowley, but what he did do was accept a street beefs match with a guy named Mike Pasesco, who's got a, a very popular YouTube channel uh, under the name Hard to Hurt. Now, I don't like Mike's YouTube channel. I think Mike is wrong almost all the time. I think the only time he's correct about anything to do with self-defense weaponry is by accident, in spite of himself. But regardless, Ron, who is about four feet tall, just like Neil Fletcher, and Mike Pasesco, who is also about four feet tall, agreed to have a match. Mike, because, I don't know, he was drunk and thought it would be fun. And Ron, because he wanted to prove to the internet that he could fight. So Ron takes the Street Beefs match with a guy who owns his own mixed martial arts gym of some kind. And it went as you would expect it to go. Ron has no training, almost no training at all. Any, any knowledge he has of the martial arts is secondhand at best. So, predictably, he, he never landed a punch. The fight was a minute long, if that. Uh, Pasesco punched him twice. The second time he got him in the liver, the first time he knocked him down, uh, the second time he got him in the liver and Ron started making the sound you make when someone punches you in your liver, which is sort of like, <sighs> and uh, fight was over. Um, and Ron, smarting from this humiliation, which exposed to the entire world, the entire internet, and this fight was followed by quite a few people in the martial arts community online. Uh, this exposed to, to all of them that he had no training at all. He had no idea what he was doing. For all his tough talk for so many years about what a badass street fighter he was, he just wasn't. And that was too much for him. So, what does he do? He goes out and buys a gun. And I think that was to show the world, well, you know, Maybe my martial arts skills are lacking, but I'm still a very dangerous person. And Ron is kind of obsessed with telling the world how dangerous he is. He's done it in multiple court appearances where the idea is you're supposed to be trying to prove your innocence or, or uh, support your innocence, I guess, since they're trying to prove you guilty and, and you're trying to not let them. And, you know, when you're telling the judge or the jury what a bad, bad, bad man you are, I think that works at cross purposes to what you're trying to accomplish. Um, so... The funny thing about the fact that Ron bought a gun is, let's back up a little. Remember the part where he went to a mental hospital? On the federal form that you fill out when you buy a gun in the United States, there's a line that says, I mean, they ask a lot of dumb questions, like, are you a fugitive from justice? But they also ask, have you ever been committed to a mental institution or adjudged mentally defective? If you answer no, but the answer was yes, you've committed a felony. So... After Ron bought the gun, he went online. This is the second dumb thing. Like, if he'd quietly bought that gun and not told anyone, no one would have known. I've always known that Ron didn't own firearms, because Ron struck me as the type of personality who, once he owned a gun, would find every excuse to film videos and post pictures about the gun. Because some people are just like that. Some people, you know that, uh, there are knife people like that too, who are very, very impressed with how dangerous they are. They're, I call them flashers. They're people who want you to know, I'm going to open my jacket and flash my knife at you. They want you to know that they're armed because they feel cool. Uh, walking heavy, that's called. Um, so he started posting pictures and videos of this gun constantly. He posted videos of him shooting the gun. He posted the receipt. His point was, see, I can buy a gun. All these people for years who have been telling me that my tactical firearms ninjutsu training is nonsense... Uh, they told me I couldn't own a gun, but I can own a gun, and this is proof that I can own a gun, except that he couldn't. Um, it was not legal. When he was committed to the mental hospital, uh, there's apparently some sort of, 
I don't know if it's discretionary paperwork, but there's something you're supposed to do to put people on the list that stops them from buying guns. So that when you do the, the NICS check, N-I-C-S, it comes back, no, no, don't sell this. Well, his NICS check came back with a three-day hold. But after those three days, there was nothing more. So the, the gun store sold him the gun. Why wouldn't they? They followed the rules. And Ron made sure the internet knew, I have this firearm. And he posted incontrovertible proof of that fact. Well, eventually the ATF got wind of it. Um, and uh, they take a dim view of this sort of thing. It doesn't help Ron's case that he's kind of a local character. He had been uh, stopped by a local police officer right before the ATF asked that he be apprehended or made it known that they were going to apprehend him. I'm not sure which. Um, he had been he had encountered a local police officer who was responding to reports of a man walking the streets with a rifle. Well, that was Ron with a BB gun over his shoulder, but he also had the handgun, um, probably in you know like a I think he had like a drop leg holster. I believe the reason he was able to buy the firearm was because the law in West Virginia had recently changed, allowing for open carry without a permit. So he was able to buy the gun without a specific permit and carry the gun openly. Uh, I don't think he was allowed to conceal it, but but as long as it was visible, he could have it with him. Um, and that was a change to their law that made it possible for all of this to happen. So uh, the cop at the time had checked the BB gun, checked the firearm. There wasn't any reason not to let Ron go, so he let him go. Well, then the feds were like, uh, no. So they rearrested him. Um, his house was searched. They found ammunition. And, of course, they found the gun. And he went to jail for about a year. There were a number of delays leading up to him actually having a trial. One of those delays was caused when he had to get a new lawyer. That's because it came out that he physically attacked his defense lawyer leading up to the trial. And the defense lawyer had to ask to be replaced. And there was some dispute about whether or not that would be permitted. And then the lawyer apparently met with the judge and said, yeah, he attacked me. And the judge was like, eh, fair enough. The courts take a dim view of that sort of thing. So Ron was not just convicted of lying on the federal form and possessing the firearm. So that's two felonies. You, you get a two for one when you do that. They enhanced, quote unquote, his sentence. The sentence enhancement made the, the time he spent in prison about twice as long. Most people, he, he probably could have gotten out with almost time served if not for that. Instead, he got a 60-month sentence. That's six zero months. He'd already been in the system leading up to the trial for about a year, so he spent the next four years in federal prison. First, he went to uh, Elkton Federal Correctional Institute, um, and then he was transferred to Fort Dix, which I think is in New Jersey. Uh, both of these are minimum security correctional institutions um, because, you know, if this was like Oz, Ron would be murdered. Like, he's not the sort of personality that would do well in a really, really bad prison. I mean, I'm sure minimum security was bad enough. Um, so any hope you might have had that this experience, spending the, the duration of an entire high school in prison, it, it changed nothing. Um, while Ron was in prison, I think it was, I want to say it was the summer of 21, he got his hands on a contraband phone and started posting on Facebook. Um, as the ghost of Ron Collins. He even posted on that MMA forum where he originally had gone to get attention for his menacing of Don Rowley in Colorado. Um, I want to say that was 2021, but I'm doing this from memory, so don't hold me to that. So the phone was eventually found and confiscated, and he stopped posting again. Well, then Ron was scheduled to get out in, um, 
uh, earlier this year. I forget the original release date. I don't remember what it was, but he ended up getting out sometime around March or April and going to a halfway house. Then he started posting on Facebook again, uh, under, albeit under a new account, not his old account. And <laughs> the first thing he did when he had internet access on Facebook was message me. Uh, apparently there were a lot of people on his list. I was one of them. And he, he wrote, he's like, I want to thank you. For, and I, I don't know what point he thought he was making. I think he was trying to be smug and like supposedly, you know, I'm going to help him redeem his good name because he's going to do some Perry Mason legal magic and get out of it. Uh, he has since tried to file a motion to overturn his conviction. Uh, the courts have destroyed him at every single possibility. Um, we're just waiting for the judge to confirm that fact in his most recent attempt to legal his way out of being a felon. Um, but yeah, he, he started messaging me. It was clear, not only had he not changed, he was no different than he was, you know, five years ago, 60 months ago. Nothing has changed for him. So <laughs> at the halfway house, he eventually did something to violate the rules, and they sent him from the halfway house to the uh, Central Regional Jail in West Virginia, where he is right now. Um, and he gets out on September the 6th, I think it is. So round about September 7th, we'll probably start seeing Ron posting online again. And one of the things he'll be saying is, what a jerk I am. Um, because, you know, clearly I am the architect of his destruction and not his many, many bad decisions. So that's the, that's the case of a martial artist sort of ending badly that I'm most familiar with. And it, it bears kind of a striking resemblance to the Steve Garten legal saga from what superficial view I have of it. I don't, I'm not familiar with that case or Steve's legal issues the way I am with, with Ron's, but what is the point of all this? What is the point of covering the fact that all these martial artists have legal problems? I've given you a handful of examples, but that's not, not nearly an exhaustive list by any stretch. Well, the point is martial artists are just people and some people cannot stay out of jail or prison. They just don't have the impulse control to think long-term and stay out of trouble. Um, I once knew a, a combatives personality who had done time in prison and wanted very much to be a combatives instructor of note. Um, and his personality was sort of defined by the fact that he would do anything he wanted to do in the short term and then find a way to weasel out of the legal consequences later if he could. Um, so... I've always remembered that attitude sort of sort of being the activating spirit behind martial artists who end badly, who end up in, in jail or prison. Because take the martial art out of it. It's just people. But in this case, uh, the reason it's so prominent in the martial arts and self-defense community in that industry is because there are so many broken, uh, immature people in the martial arts. I think this industry draws people who want power who want to feel special, who want to feel dominant over other people, and asserting that they have martial skills that they don't actually have in a lot of cases. I think that's what makes them feel special. And that's why there's a disproportionate number of weirdos in self-defense. Um, you know, they used to say that Dungeons and Dragons was going to turn your kid weird. And Tom Hanks actually did an after-school movie called Mazes and Monsters that was all about a kid who loses his ability, he loses his connection to reality because of Dungeons and Dragons role-playing games. And, it, well, it was, actually it was Mazes and Monsters in the movie because they didn't want to get sued. Um, and that's ridiculous because it isn't 
the thing that makes people weird or criminal or unconnected to reality. It's that people who are weird or criminal and unconnected to reality gravitate towards the fantasy, and the martial arts realm is one way that they can acquire that fantasy. And there's so much to draw from. Um, it was a lot easier to hang out your shingle and pretend to be a ninja master back in the days when Ashita Kim did it before the internet. It's a lot harder for them to do that now, but they also have more venues than ever to sort of ply their trade. You know, social media, all the new social media stuff. I've been looking at lots of martial arts stuff on TikTok late, lately. By the time you watch this video, maybe that site won't even exist. Who knows? There's just so much of it out there. I just know that Ron, for example, has been doing this since the days of MySpace. That's when we first messaged with each other was on MySpace. Um, Steve Garten goes back even earlier than that to that mailing list I told you about. John Keehan goes back to the founding of Mail Order Martial Arts, and his story could have been very different. So I think when it comes to martial arts and, and self-defense instructors and the power these people do or don't have, and the sort of cachet and prestige of being a skilled martial arts guy. Always remember that behind all of that is just a person, and that person could be deeply flawed. All right, that's going to do it for the Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore. I have been Phil Elmore. This has been the Martial Arts Podcast. Until next time, pretend I said something cool here. This has been the Martial Arts Podcast with Phil Elmore. Visit us online at linktree slash Elmore.